the American Psychological Association just came out that one in four people are so burnt out, they don't even have energy to do anything once they get home. The uh, social survey, you know, the last one was done pre-pandemic, but even that one wasn't great, where only 39% of Americans identified as very happy. We're now down to 19%. That's telling, right? Sometimes in parenthood, we get so caught up in the monotony of the routine and the stress and pressures of keeping little humans alive and engaged and resilient that we can sometimes lose touch with our need to have fun. And that is just what I'll be talking about with today's guest, Dr. Mike Rucker. Mike is an organizational psychologist, behavioral scientist, and charter member of the International Positive Psychology Association. He's also the author of the book, The Fun Habit, which is out now. Today, we are tackling our society's obsessive focus on happiness. We're also going to talk about the importance of play, and we'll take a deeper look at whether what fills our cup in the moment actually serves to fill us up over time. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey, and distilled everything down into easy to understand and actionable parenting insights, so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hey, everybody. I'm super excited to introduce our guest today, Dr. Mike Rucker. Thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, my goodness. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited because I really love how, first of all, I just really like having psychologists and researchers on the podcast because I love when people who like do research can translate it for parents mm-hmm. and and like translate it in ways that people can like actually like use it. And like what better thing to have usable research on than like how to play and how to have fun. <laughs> we need that so badly right now. Yeah, I think so. Um, it, it's been an interesting journey. And I think for sure, parents are some of the most fun starved, right? Uh, it's a, yeah. it seems like a pretty interesting thing happening in the West. I talk about it in the book a bit. Um, and I'm certainly not an expert. But one thing, you know, something that was sort of illuminated to me, because I've lived it, you know, it's a social norm of our environment is how unique this idea that we have to be best friends with our kids is fairly U.S. centric. Now, mm-hmm. I totally buy into it because I like it, right? I, and yeah. I enjoy having my kids also be my friends and playmates. But you know, in collectivist societies, you know, where there tends to be you know a patriarch and things of that nature, you really do share those responsibilities, and so the the relationship you ha- have with your child is just different. And so it's an interesting thing here where, um, you know, the world's gotten a little less safe, uh, subjectively, at least, you know, most of us feel that way. Um, cause I think, you know, free range parenting certainly was more prevalent in my generation and you just don't see that now. And so this idea that we always do need to be on, um, is a fairly recent phenomenon. And so, yeah, but it's a truth, right? Like we can't skirt it. It's not bad or good. It's just, it's interesting and new, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think there's a way, and I see this a lot in the parents that I work with, like there's an anxiety in parenting, not everybody, but a lot of parents feel this anxiety that like, I have to be, like you said, always on, always 
entertaining my kids or always <laughs> protecting my kids or always teaching my kids or all, you know, always something. Yeah. I quote a comedian in the book where like, it's essentially a form of performance art at this point, right? Like if you're not, you know, doing like a frozen musical with your child to get them to sleep, then somehow you're a bad parent. And, um, you know, it's an overarching theme of just adulthood in general that, you know, we sort of, you know, we're so hyper-focused on motivation and what others are doing that it's, you know, like planting our own goalposts becomes problematic and I won't get us off on a tangent, but I think it's a component of that, right? Like, you know, we have, you calling them role models is a bit interesting, but there's just so much information and most of that information is curated. So oftentimes that anxiety and guilt that you're describing, right, is so artificial because you're comparing yourself against things that aren't really real. You know, our parents didn't have that. They were like, you know, their litmus test is, am I doing a good job? They didn't have to compare themselves to a hundred different parents. Right. Totally. We are now comparing ourselves to what seems like the whole world, like our whole social media feed, at least. So that, as we were just saying, is a driving force behind parents feeling that need to like always be on, quote unquote. But the other thing you talk about a lot, which I think is just as important, is this concept of time poverty. Yeah. And I think for parents, it's of particular importance because, I mean, we, we can't make more time. So what do we do to improve our presence in the time we have to make it feel like it's more used or more effective? It's an exercise in mindfulness. It really starts with, you know, a simple time audit is usually a great place to start. There's only 168 hours in your week. And whenever you do these time-based surveys where you look at people en masse, even the most time-poor group, which, you know, by no surprise is uh, 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 female mothers in uh, heterosexual relationships, you know, just because there still is a parody, you know, with regards, even though we're trying, you know, data looks good, but we still have a long ways to go. I'm talking to us fathers that are listening. Um, (laughs) But even for busy moms, there's generally at least two hours of leisure that is where, you know, if you honestly look at how you're spending that time, it's, it's generally in a passive leisure state. So it's trying to find opportunities where you can, you know, switch what you're doing, whether that's, you know, creating, um, you know, better kind of give and take with your partner. There's all sorts of strategies. So we could kind of go down that bullet list. But to answer your mm-hmm. question discreetly, it's you know, seeing how you are spending that time and then seeing what particular variables you could play with. Because you you don't want to prescribe fun just as another thing to do on your to-do list, right? right. You know, that's right. going to be in the- Same the, reason the, why people roll their eyes when they say, just do self-care. And people yeah, are like, yeah. oh, what are you- <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Great advice. It's like, well, if you say just have some fun, just play, people are going to feel equally, I imagine, like, okay, that would be real nice, but how am I actually going to do that? And that's where I feel like some of your strategies are helpful and some of just are, your reframes are helpful. Yeah, I think, it, well, first it does require, I didn't like this word at first, but it's clear that it applies. It does require a radical reframe, right? We've been so socially conditioned either, you know, and it runs the gambit. So it's hard to talk about because you almost have to give a lecture of all the headwinds that are against us. Is it the Puritan work ethic? You know, is it because we have these devices that have really been rigged? You know, they're not as nefarious as some people make them out to be. But the reason we call it the attention economy is true, is that they are meant to steal our attention away from us. They, you know, we do feel kind of, you know, uh, artificially good when we're 
keeping busy, right? Whether that's, mm-hmm. you know, through passive leisure, looking at social media, or even something as insidious as answering emails that we don't really need to answer at eight in the morning, you know, yeah. excuse me, eight at night. So th- there are those things. Um, and then, uh, you know, guilt, right? Like you're like, you know, you, you're, you have good intentions and you want to serve and that's part of your ethos. And you feel somehow that if you give it away, you're not being a good steward to your family. Yeah. And so all three of those can be unpacked. And I think the biggest one is the last one, right? You know, how do you get past really? that guilt? And so what I bring up in the book, and it was my big like light bulb moment, you know, cause I had kind of just been playing with the ideas. And then I, I, I got my hands on this piece of research. It's, out of Stanford, Harvard, and MIT, and it, it's called the hedonic flexibility principle. And essentially, it's a huge sample size, right? Twenty-eight thousand folks that they followed around and, and did um, extensive time audits. And what they found is that when we're ground down to a nub, right? When we're not having fun, when we're you know essentially doing that, you know, all the habitual activities and just kind of living for others, that when we do have time for leisure, it tends to be what we call passive leisure, things that aren't really leading to our betterment, right? Again, Mm -hmm. displacing boredom, displacing discomfort, displacing anxiety, um, things that, you know, are essentially pacifying activities. Right. They feel very like survival mode. Yeah. And they're just trying to get past it or it feels artificially comfortable, right? Because again, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I cite neuroscientists in the book and, but, you know, I think we kind of oversimplify the role of dopamine and the the role of oxytocin. Like these things are important, but just to say like, oh, you need another dopamine hit. Like neuroscientists after student neuroscientists, can we just stop saying that? Cause it's not exactly (laughs) true. Right. So I won't do that here either because I made a commitment, but it does make us feel comfortable. Right. I think this idea, this psychological, um, uh, idea of valence, you know, we're either attracted to something that fills us up or we are kind of displaced, you know, something makes us feel uncomfortable and we're repelled by it. That anxiety, what you shared, that guilt, that, you know, sort of, um, we want to get out of that. We want to get out of that discomfort and those yeah. things can just distract us. They're not necessarily filling us up, but, you know, again, channel surfing, doom scrolling, you know, you know things of that nature. So, yeah. And it's not a really a clinical term, but the thought, the word that keeps floating through my mind when you're describing this is like numbness. Like yeah. sometimes we want to numb out and parents will, people, but parents will often say like, after my kids go to bed, I just want to numb out. Yeah, I want to have three glasses of wine or I want to watch 10 Netflix episodes. I don't want to do anything that requires me to actually do work to have the fun and the leisure. Like, I I don't want to do a hobby. I just want to numb out. Yeah. And which is fair. Right. And so again, that's why this, uh, you know, to go back and kind of surmise it and get through it with the hedonic flexibility principle, what they found is folks that do have rigid transition rituals, right? So they know when work ends and these are even folks that work hard. So it could still be Mm -hmm. like a 50 hour work week for you, but when the work day is over, the phone turns off, and then you're engaging in what is called active leisure in ways that really do fill you up. Those folks are the ones that are way more productive the next day. And Mm. so I often think that's good in the sense of allowing people to reframe. Now, the challenge is, and maybe you see this in your own practice too, is to get there takes like two to four weeks, right? Because like if someone is reconnecting with a new hobby, generally the dissonance 
you know, of those first couple of weeks, especially if it was something they really enjoyed early on, like let's say playing music or dancing and they get back in that class, you know, class of their peers and they're like, I've forgotten it all. This is horrible. Like, why am I here? But generally, and again, because we have this predisposition, this work from Timothy Wilson out of uh, University of Virginia. Um, But again, and Dan Gilbert was involved. Like there is an evolutionary purpose for us discrediting having joyful thoughts, right? Because like that, you know, back in the early days, we did need to be quite uh, mindful of what could hurt us, right? Like now mm-hmm. we have enough safety mechanisms. There's certainly issues where um, we could get in trouble, but uh, the ability to prioritize pleasurable thoughts is a lot more advantageous than it ever has been. And so getting in that mode of understanding that um, once you do get yourself in that space, how restorative it is um, becomes mm-hmm. important. And so, uh, but again, that initial lift. Uh, you know, can become problematic. Right. And so like, how do you get there? Yeah. Do you see that in your own practice? I do. I mean, I see it in my own life. Like I, (laughs) I mean, like I, after bedtime, I'm like, get me on my phone, but you know, what's really interesting is like, I'm also aware that that doesn't make me feel better. And I'm, and it does, and it just really leaves me feeling more depleted, but it's hard to break that habit because it's just become so ingrained and I think it's a product of burnout for a lot of people that like you get kind of entrenched in these, what you call passive, le- uh, passive leisure activities, which I think is a really nice way of describing it because it, it is leisure. Um, but I would wager that if people really t- took an honest reflection on it, that their passive leisure activity is feel good in the moment, but don't feel good later. Like they don't actually give us a product of rest or self fulfillment or confidence or pleasure or affect our mood in a positive way. And so it makes sense to me, like just from a personal, like it totally makes sense that like more active leisure, and maybe that's not going to happen after bedtime when I'm super tired, like after my kids go to bed, not my bedtime, but like, (laughs) you know, maybe it needs to happen on like, I don't know, maybe I need to carve out a, a couple hours on a weekend day to go do something for myself or do something with my kids. Like, you know, I think there's a way in which, like, I don't know, I'm totally relating to what you're talking about. <laughs> I do, I get, I get in the traps. Well, and I think it's about equity, right? There's a couple of things there. So one is it's insidious, right? To your point. Like, I think if I were to write another book, it's clear as I was going on the, the book tour that folks are in a state where it's it's hard to do that reframe, right? Like we are mm-hmm. all so burnt out and there's some really interesting things brewing where, um, and not to get too political, but you, you, you're seeing this parody where a lot of folks realize they're giving a lot more away than they thought for folks that aren't necessarily, you know, um, interested in their well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think it's really hard to actualize that when this, behavior habituates over time to your point it depletes slowly it's almost like a death by a thousand cuts right so it just it does feel good in the moment right and often you know at the onset you're not going to feel guilty about it but when you're like looking at the same sort of images for the 12th time then i think you do you know it it starts to eat away at you and Mm -hmm. um, where i was going with that is like you look in mass at the statistics that we're facing right like um, 
the uh, social survey just came out, you know, the last one was done pre-pandemic, but even that one wasn't great, where only 39% of Americans identified as very happy. We're now down to 19%, right? Is, is that totally because of burnout? I don't, or the, you know, I think some has to do with the pandemic, but it's still, that's telling, right? Yeah. Um, the American Psychological Association just came out with, um, uh, you know, this just hit LinkedIn the last couple of weeks that one in four people are so burnt out, they don't even have energy to do anything once they get home, right? So mm-hmm. they just, there's just no pleasure in life at all. Right. Um, and I wonder and so, if there's like a bit of a, of like a creating a self-fulfilling prophecy or like creating a bigger problem, like a vicious cycle maybe, where like the more we feel burnt out, the more that affects the way we show up as parents, which makes our kids who are going to feel that more dysregulated, more tricky, more apt to like have power struggles and resist and be a little bit more like eh, icky, which is going to make us feel more exhausted, more burnt out. So it's like our, as much as our like burnout begets more burnout within the parenting system, I wonder if like on the flip side are finding more effective ways to engage in joyful leisure activities that are more satisfying, more fulfilling, perhaps more work, but also have a greater impact on our mood and our sort of self-states when is going to make parenting potentially easier because that's going to translate and get felt by our kids and it's going to have the kind of a positive cyclical nature. Yeah, I think uh, social contagion backs that up, right? And so I'm making big leaps, but I'm pretty confident in my assertions there that um, you know, the way I describe it is most of us are in this downward spiral. And I believe the data supports that. Again, mm-hmm. you know, these aren't, we don't have any reductive uh, studies to show it because those become difficult, right? Because there mm-hmm. are so many different factors, but it's clear we're in a crisis. And the thing that I feel like is really illuminating is we're the last in line to figure it out. You're seeing countries across the EU start to protect the well-being of people in interesting ways because they see this happening, right? Like, so um, you see multiple countries in the EU playing with four-day work weeks. I don't think that would, you know, ent- how entrenched our social norms are would work here. But the one I really like is how many countries by mandate, by law, are insisting unless there's a reason for it that work uh, email servers have to shut down at five on Friday so that everyone's mm-hmm. weekend is protected, right? Because- mm-hmm. These are probably also the countries that have like, you know, paid family leave. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's because they're most of them except us. You know, again, another similar stat, I cite it in the book, but it it was revalidated uh, for 2023. We're second to last with regards to companies giving us leisure, right? It's, uh, you know, 10 days, 10 days off is the average for one year's worth of work. And there's only one country in the developed world that's worse. That's Micronesia at nine. So we're second to last. So again, just another stat that highlights like, what have we done? And the other thing I find really interesting is we are still empathetic. We're a very kind group of people. Like, I don't want to get down, you know, like, I think there's some issues and we discuss them, but it's sort of like our empathy needs a, a reframe, right? You go to someone in the EU or, you know, I've got friends in Oceania and in Australia. 
if someone's going, you know, on a vacation with their family, the employees get together and go, we've got your back. Like when you come back to your desk, there isn't going to be anything for you to do. Like we got you. And here, like the inclination is, you know, even if it's just like a weekly report that doesn't have too much impact, it's like, oh, I got to get that done because no one else is going to do it. It's just a very strange, you know, um, world that we live in here in the States that, that that same empathy applies. So it's not like we're villains or we're doing like, it's just sort of in reverse, right? I don't want to let yeah. down my fellow colleagues. Um, yeah. and, and how toxic is that? Because that means you're never spending any time, right? At least from what I've found. Yeah. And again, it's not original research, but as soon as you answer an email on vacation, it's an extension of work. You're not on vacation anymore. It's not a healthy escape, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's uh, oh, okay, this is a working vacation. Yeah. And I think that that could be applied to, like, I'm always thinking in terms of like, how does this map onto parenting? But I think of like, like parents who are like, well, I can't go on a vacation because I can't leave my kids or I couldn't possibly leave my partner alone to parent my kids for a weekend. That wouldn't be fair or it would be too hard. It's not worth it. And like in some ways, parenting kind of maps onto that work and going on date nights. And it does. You're, you're exactly right. I mean, I mean, cause essentially it is domestic work, right. For, you know, again, just using an objective term. And I think that is, you know, if you're so in that state, you know, I talk about it in the book, it's like, what kind of variables can you play with? You know, again, if everything is from a sense of duty with just a little bit of creativity, there's likely moments for you to just change the tenor of that sentiment. Right. So, one of the pieces of work that I really like is uh, Dr. Cassie Holmes. I'm not sure if are you familiar. Um, no. She she did a really interesting study out of UCLA of just having folks, and again, it was only a prime, right, to go into uh, their weekend and treat it like a vacation. No other, you know, not anything to do. Just realize this is your time. And so what people did with their time didn't change much. Some of it did, but some of it didn't. But just that understanding, like, oh, yeah, I can relax my shoulders. Like, this is my time. And if I want to work, I get to work. You know, if I want to spend time with my kids, I do. Maybe I'll do some, you know, more things for renewal. And um, everyone came back to work. That Not everyone, obviously, but a majority of folks came back to work way more invigorated and ready to tackle the week. Mm-hmm. Now, is that type of reframe where you're sort of tricking yourself going to work habitually? I'm I'm pretty sure based on my understanding of psychology, it won't, you know, because you're eventually going to go, you know, it, it's gonna, not going to be novel anymore, right? But I think it's a good understanding to highlight when you approach things going, you know what, I have a little bit more over this control over the situation than I think, um, then you can start to play with the variables, right? Like I tend mm-hmm. to look at fun, uh, the people that we spend our time with, the activities we're doing in the environment we're in. Like maybe it's like, we just need to get out of the house. You know what? I need to watch you kids, but we're going to go on a nature hike. And by the way, I'm going to put on headphones and listen to my favorite music and you guys figure it out. I'll still, you know, pay attention to your well-being and make sure you don't, you know, pick up poison ivy or whatever it is. But, you know, you guys figure it out, you know, a little bit of free range play or whatever it is. And I'm just so surprised again, like I didn't know this work was going to hit the way it does. Like, wait, I'm allowed to do that. Of course you are. You always were, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love this idea too of like, you know, our thinking has a huge impact on our mood and our behaviors. And so if you go into the weekend thinking, here we go, another 
weekend of work, and in this case, I mean like parenting work. Right. Um, you know, here's my second shift. Here's my third, fourth, fifth shift. You know, whatever. That's so good. That's going to have a big impact on our mood. And it would be co- like, how could we contrast that by what would it feel like if I went into my weekend saying, okay, here's a time to find some pleasure. Here's my chance to do something different with my kids this weekend. Or I know I have to do, you know, this amount of these hours with my kids. I have these tasks to do. How can I, how can I think about that less as like a tedious chore and more as like a a time to connect with my kids in a positive way. And again, not in like a toxic positive way, not in a discounting the fact that we're tired and this doesn't always feel good. Um, But to say, I get to choose the way I perceive things and I get to choose what I focus on and that can impact our mood. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, you know, the the blessing and the curse of, of getting this book together is that there are so many different tools and some aren't going to be appropriate, right? So I always, you know, it, it was the same thing where I kind of fell victim to some of the science of positive psychology. You forget these things are aligned on a normal curve, right? And, you know, one of the things I bring up in the book is how Sonia Lubomirsky out of University of Riverside kind of shined a light on the fact that gratitude had gotten overprescribed, right? Gratitude, an amazing tool that for almost everyone is going to be helpful in context. But the fact that, you know, life coaches and other folks that didn't necessarily truly understand the concepts were now saying you must find three, three things a day to be grateful for, right? And like when the motivation doesn't hit and it creates that dissonance, that's where problems arise, right? And so you're exactly right. Like anything that just seems like another prescription might not hit, but understanding that you have control to pick which one of these tools might work Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Because maybe it is you just need a break from your kids. You know, you might have someone who's not neurotypical that like, you know, is a lot of work. And so you love them and you enjoy spending time. But, you you know, again, um, it might, you know, for whatever reason, you just need your own space. And so, you know, maybe it's having a play date with another set of parents that are in a similar situation and not feeling guilty about it, because guess what? Again, it's additive, right? They're going to be grateful because generally when you, again, tribe up, you know, some of the stuff we were talking about at the beginning that used to be accessible to us, um, you know, each person feels that relief. It's additive. Like maybe they have a little bit more work than they would have for those three hours that they're, you know, watching your children, but the time that they get back to be able to have that space and breathe and, you know, and have that time for renewal, Mm -hmm. they're going to be super grateful for. So there's all yeah. sorts of ways to sort of take back your time, as it were, or create time affluence. And some yeah. might not work for you, but you know, there's going to be some that will. And so, um, again, I guess what I wanted to piggyback off of what you were saying is, if one thing doesn't work, don't don't feel like the the, the world's collapsed on you or like things are helpless because oftentimes you see that right, like oh, that's just not going to work for me. Yeah, yeah, and not everything's going to work for everyone. It's also like all of this is making me think too of like. Um, quality over quantity, which I talk about a lot. Like when we are with our kids, we can, like, I, I, I'm totally guilty of this, but like (laughs) if we're multitasking, if we've got our head in our work while we're being with our kids or we're with them, but we're like, you know, our mind is doing 10 other tasks that doesn't really feel good for us. And it doesn't fill them up. 
But if we like sort of really recognize that we multitasking actually frazzles us and it doesn't and it depletes us more, and we can sort of say, okay, I'm going to take 10 minutes. Like I'll set a timer on my phone, 10 minutes, and then put my phone in my pocket so it's not in my eyesight. Um, and just be with my kids with no agenda, no, no task we have to do. That that can really that can be incredibly filling for us and for them. And it also, it's like when we fill them up, that frees us up. Because then usually once they're filled with our attention and our focus and our presence, then when when that time is over, they usually feel more, more capable of independent play and sustaining their focus and other activities and tolerating us not meeting their needs. Um, in that moment. So we get a little bit of a break. And so I think, you well, know, and there's another component about that, that I've been unpacking again. I, I, I kind of just touch on it on the book, but it goes back to that downward spiral that you were talking about. And again, I'm throwing a huge boulder at a glass house. Um, so we'll just both <laughs> confess that like, you know, life is a work in progress. Right. But um, when, you know, so when I was, you know, start, I, I kind of was trying to figure out whether I wanted to go the clinical route or the organizational route because my uh, affinity has always been peak performance and positive psychology at the onset of my uh, foray into education. And so I don't know if you remember, I'm, I'm going to butcher the name, but it was a, I think it's called the Bozo Clown Studies or something. Do you remember that uh, of mm-hmm. kids modeling behavior? Um, it's, you know, when we could still do things like Skinner's box, right. Or it was still okay to put kids in labs, but for folks that don't know that you, you can find this all over YouTube, it, it's the early, um, studies of looking at, uh, kids modeling behavior. And so this lovely lady comes in and she essentially beats the living, you know, business out of this clown and the kids are left to their own devices and they do within seconds, just start doing what she did, you know, violently beating up this clown, why I'm bringing that up is oh you know, when they see that we're half on our phones and then at, you know, two hours later, we don't know why they won't get off roadblocks. Like, cause they, th- th- you've normalized that behavior. And yeah. it's re- again, you don't, it's hard because there's that discontinuation of like, wait, I don't, why aren't you doing what I say? Well, that's because they wanted your attention, you know, and you were answering while you were, you know, looking up, looking down, looking up, looking down, like you've normalized that. And, So that's, you know, you can say, you know, do what I say, don't do what I do, but that's, especially now it's not very helpful. Right. Yeah. And I think it, I do think, you know, giving kids half of our attention all the time, it's, it's really unfulfilling for both people. And it's actually, it sounds counterintuitive, but like giving kids all of your attention a portion of the time is actually more effective. Like I think we were talking at the beginning of this, like this myth and this pressure that like parents feel that causes so much anxiety. Like I always have to be on, I always have to be entertaining or always have to be teaching or stimulating or doing something. That's where we get into that trap of having to do a little bit of us all the time and we can't sustain it. So we start to fragment off and we're doing all the stuff, but we're not there because we couldn't possibly be. If you're trying to parent 100% of the time, you are going to half parent all the time. Yeah. And so if you start to recognize I can parent fully some of the time and I cannot parent at all some of the time. Like I don't mean like let your kids play with electrical outlets and forks, but like you don't ha- like if they're in a safe place, you can sit back and have a cup of coffee 
and be separate from them as long as you, and then like, or go do something you need to do that feels good for you or that's an obligation you have. And then when you are with your kids, and I think it's especially nice to sort of use double, double duty, right? Like use time that you're already having to do caregiving activities for your kids. This comes from Magda Gerber and her Rye parenting philosophy of like caregiving moments are fill up moments. Use them that way. Make the diaper change be a fill up moment. Give them your full undivided attention. Let it last three minutes instead of one minute and let it be playful. Let it be interactive. Let it be a quote unquote time suck in, and then, then you're done and put your kid down and let them play and go have like a moment to yourself. So it's like when we're doing these caregiving moments, bathing, diapering, dressing, feeding, getting them ready for transitions, like we have to do these things anyway. If we can use that time more efficiently by using it to be being fully present in those moments, then we're going to feel better about it. They're going to feel filled up by us. And then in the, and then there's better, it gives us permission and balance to be able to, and space to be able to not be doing constant parenting the rest of the time. Yeah. And I've been surprised. So there's two things there. One, cause I don't want to lose sight of it. It's funny. Cause as you pointed, we're bouncing between the macro topics that I talk about in the book and how they can be applied. But what you just described, and you might know it already, <clears throat> goes right into Matthew Killingsworth's work about mind wandering, right? When we are mindful about whatever we do, um, and we're not letting our mind sort of wander, to your point, we just know that we, for whatever reason, the byproduct is we feel happier and fulfilled. And I think we just know, you know, similar to gratitude, how effective mindfulness is in all aspects of life of being a useful tool. Um, because for whatever reason, when we're letting our mind sort of wander, um, you know, that's when negative rumination happens and, and things of that nature. Another, and I write about this in the book is, um, again, it goes back to those transition rituals, right? I think, you know, I talk about, uh, a, a friend of mine who was, came to me describing exactly what you just said, right? She's like, you know, and it was during the pandemic, like I'm in this state of performative theater, like, you know, because I feel, uh, I don't want to name drop either. Um, I was about to say her son's name, which isn't fair to her, but so, you know, she was, she's caring for this little kid and feel, you know, like he wants her attention. And it was really just a directive. I was like, have you tried to tell him that you just want to read a book and that like for an hour, can you just do solo water play? Cause he, he loved to play in the sprinklers and, and play with the hose. She's like, I haven't tried that. Okay. Try it. That's all it took. She just tried it. And he's like, of course, you know, so he played, she sat there on the porch. She lives in Chicago. Um, you know, sat on the porch, got to read her book got to hear the giggles of her son, which lights her up, but she didn't have to be an active participant at all. Um, yeah. And that goes right into what you were saying. And then the hour was over and she felt renewed. And then they went back to, you know, their normal routine, but it's really just yeah. that invitation that it's possible. Right. Yeah. And that we have our right to ask for it and make space for it. Like it's okay for us to say, I can't play with you right now because I'm going to drink my cup of coffee or I'm going to read my book for a few minutes and then I can come play with you. Or, you know, this comes up a lot. And I know, like, I really want to talk to you about play because I think play <laughs> both with our kids and by ourselves is incredibly important. But I also like so many parents like, but I don't really like to play with my kids. And I'm like, me neither. And it's okay. <laughs> and I think there's a big difference between playing with your kids or entertaining your kids and being present while your children play. 
And I think those are three different things. And they're all for better, you know, have pros and cons, right? But I think playing with our kids because we actually really want to, and it's this mutual enjoyment of play and, you know, creative expression and connection, awesome. Entertaining our kids, I usually say, like, check in on that. Like, do you have to? <laughs> right. And, and then being present while your kids play is probably the thing I would exp- I would hope parents do the most of because I think within you know that's usually what's the most effective for, and and most fulfilling for both parties because the kids are very very happy for us to just be present with them while they play. We can just have our sort of space to observe them and get filled up by watching like like you said like hearing their giggles and like watching them solve problems. But like you can't force want force playing with your kids because if you don't like it, they're gonna feel that they don't yeah. need that. From you. Yeah. Again, I, you know, my background isn't clinical, but I, I stole this from the clinical lit- literature, and it just it essentially backs up what you said: is that if you aren't enjoying watching them play, as long as you're a loving parent, and it's not depleting, right? Like again, if you're so burnt out, we have other problems to kind of you know start at the foundation, right? But if you can get into the mental frame, like I do this at uh, jumpy houses, again, something, an anecdote I bring up in the book, but I hate those. I don't, they like, you know, I, I, I just didn't want to go to another jumpy house. Right. And like, but now when I am in that environment, I get into the mindset of, okay, this again, you know, this is time that I have committed to them because it's an, an activity they enjoy. And I really focus my mind on their enjoyment. Like I am glad that I have mm-hmm. this ability, but you know, again, that it's a reframe trick, but it, it, it seems to be really helpful. Again, use very episodically. Use it too much and you realize you're giving too much away, right? Sure. Um, with regards to play dates, I, I'm not a play expert, but w- with regards to social connection, that I, I feel confident in talking with is that creating play dates. I just had one with my best friend because we both turned 50. Like those are the things we know that, you know, from you know, this amazing loneliness study that just came out, right? Like if we're not mm-hmm. doing those things, if we're not creating opportunities for fun so that we have that spontaneity, we have those rich encoded memories with the folks that we really like living outside the sense of, you know, all of these things that do feel like a burden, then, then what are we doing? Right? Like it's clear that that's a key component to um, whether you want to call it self-care or not. Like it, it's just an, an important component of living, what yeah. I what I think, I, I don't know if it was brought up in, in what you mentioned in the three, but I think not enough of us either take a step back and realize that we can co-create experiences with our kids. Just like our kids don't want to play with jerks. You know, we, you see them and, um, you know, everyone's having fun, but they'll storm and norm and form fairly quickly and be like, that person's not fun. I don't want to do that. Like the same goes with parent and child, right? It, again, I always... There are times where, you know, if you're trying to teach your kid baseball, that might not necessarily be fun. That's an activity of mastery where you're mm-hmm. meant to be a teacher. There might, you know, my mentor is a gentleman by the name of Michael Gervais, and he took me to task with that, you know, and I was like, well, that's, you're trying to teach him a skill. Like, so there, that might not be an unadulterated fun experience. I'm, so what I'm describing right now is like, I want to have fun with my child. I love this person and I, I want to do it. How do you co-create that experience? Like, you know, if you don't want to play matchbox cars on the floor because your knees hurt, like you have the ability to go, hey, you know, do you want to go play Nerf guns or 
do for me, it was taking a dance class with my daughter. Like I, I wanted to engage in dancing and I was essentially just taking her to this rudimentary tumble class where I was like killing an hour sitting on a, a bench. And I realized like, Hey, you know, this is something I've wanted to do. And it's essentially this activity, you know, that I've, I, I've prescribed to is really to only get her out of the house. Like, how can we do something together that I find enjoyable and co-create memories together? And so yeah. Again, I don't want to like give a listicle with that because what happens if those five things don't hit? But I imagine anyone listening now could be like, you know what? I think the two of us would like that, you know, whether it's woodworking yeah. or dancing or, you know, even improv. I've heard of, you know, uh, you know, um, preteens and, and, and adults going to improv class together. So like, what is it that you two might enjoy? And that is not to discount the, what you did say. And that is that you definitely need time outside of that. Like you you know, I say start with two to three hours because, you know, supposedly we had 14, you know, when I present that, you know, often you know, I, I saw your visceral response too. I imagine that like, so, but two or three out of 168, like if you can't find that again, maybe there's deeper work that needs to be done to ask right, like, right. you know, why can't you take that time off the table and then just start. And again, remember the benefits might not be actualized for two to three weeks, you know, like the yeah. first couple of weeks are going to be like, ah, you know, that guilt's still going to be there. And, you know, the, the change in your habitual routine, like, ah, I had to drive 20 minutes to get here. Really? That's, that's the mm -hmm. hang up. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. And again, that's like, what do we, what do we choose to focus on? Do we choose to focus on, oh God, it took me 20 minutes to get here. And then I only got to do it for 30 minutes and that's going to take me 20 minutes to get. It's like, uh, or we could say that 30 minutes felt good. Yep. Right. Like we, we do get to choose what we focus on if we can notice what we're a focusing on. Um, yeah. and I think, it, you know, I feel like there's these two pieces to the play, like the good play, the good, authentic, fulfilling play as parents. And one is the play that we do with our kids in this co-created way that where we're both joining together, or perhaps where we're just present being present while our children play. If we aren't in the mood to co-create the play right. and just sort of observing them with presence. But then there's this other piece, which is like, not involving our children that's like just for us like where are our grown-up play dates like where right. are our connections to other people or perhaps like to pursue a new skill or a hobby or some type of like personal enjoyment that's not necessarily about productivity or product or outcome but just like to be in the moment and enjoying ourselves and like having fun you know, another effective strategy, again, not my idea, this comes from a buddy of mine by the name of Nir Ayal, but if you have a, um, uh, you know, a small tribe, right? Like, so you have three sets of parents that you really like, like creating sort of a round robin, you know, where you guys are doing dinner dates and the kids of those, you know, parents have clear boundaries. Like this is meant you know, you set up some sort of environment where they are, they're separated and they know they can come in if you know, someone needs a bandaid or whatever. And then, you know, the play dates really for the, you know, for the adults and there's that separation, but it's sort of a, you know, a spin on the, um, you know, sharing, um, childcare duties, you, you know, with a trusted person, because that really works well too, right? Like you can, you know, whatever it is, whatever the six of you find fun for him, it's like these, you know, he's uh, an intellectual. So it's like they, they literally one of them comes with a Ted style presentation um, <laughs> and entertains the other five, which I think is kind of cool because I'm a geek, too. Um, but it could be whatever you guys, you know, enjoy. Maybe it's just, you know, a few 
few drinks, not overindulgence, of course, but, you know, then just enjoying each other's company or, you know, whatever it is, but there just, there are ways to get creative. And again, it just takes a little nudge. I'm sure you see this too, right? Like my favorite part of all this is it's once someone accepts the invitation, there's not a lot of work to do afterwards. Like generally once they get a taste of it, you know, and it's like, wait a second. Okay. I get it. Like I was worried about, you know, this kind of servant leadership, but I'm a way better version of myself when I actually do have a little bit of fun. That's just for me. You know, it's not a selfish act. No, it's, I mean, this is an old saying, but like you can't pour from an empty cup. Like we have to do things that feel good for us and also modeling for our kids that we take care of our, our needs in that way that we prioritize our own enjoyment. We prioritize our our interests and we pursue them and we experiment with different things and we try new stuff and I'm going to take a dance class this weekend and we'll see how it goes. It might be fun. It might be hard, you know, or I'm going to start, you know, creating some type of like art project. My kids get to watch me do that, you know, and that's cool for them. They don't need to participate in that for them to observe something valuable in our attending to that part of ourselves. And I, it's funny because it makes me think about this fact, like when I'm working with patient, like adult patients, whether they're parents or not, one of the first things that I'm checking for when I'm looking to assess like for depression or for like just functioning in general is like, what is your balance of like work, play, love? And most adults don't play. And I'm always like, okay, well, if that pie is not balanced, um then we have to look at that usually play is like the smallest of the slivers of those three categories. And it's like, what can we do to reconnect you to play? And it might not look like Legos, like it was when maybe you were seven, but maybe it does. I mean, my mom is obsessed with Legos. Legos is like my mom's play, but like play can come in any form. It can be something that is like a memory from your childhood, or it can be something new, a little bit more sophisticated, like, I don't know. There's just so many things, but I think it's very important people to do a little bit of an audit of their, of their play. That's the first thing I prescribe in the book. I mean, you know, it's been around for ages, right? So it's like one of those things, it's, it's hardly an original idea. So it's hard to write. Like, you know, for me, I was introduced to it by Laura Vanderkam who wrote a book literally called 168 hours. Um, but you know why we all talk about it? Cause it's such an effective tool and it's, it's not fun, right? It's a little bit boring, right? Like I, but I think if you approach it with curiosity and you're open to poking fun at yourself, like, holy cow, you know, like if you, if you need the nudge to start, I think a, a majority of us could just open up our, the health meter on our phone. You know, that like, those are some very telling statistics. Oh, really? You can't find two hours? Just, you know, maybe it's not all on Instagram or Facebook, but tally up all of your apps, you know, you know, and then round out the top three and tell me you can't find three hours in there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's totally true. I think this is all really helpful. I mean, I have some important takeaways that I'm going to have to go look at myself and be like, where is my play right now? Because I'm not playing enough. It's important for all of us. And I think it's good for us. And if it's good for us, it's good for our kids. Because if we are modeling that kind of self-health, healthy self-behaviors, um, they're going to benefit from that. And you tell me, but my understanding, because again, it's not my forte, but creating that type of autonomy away from your kids, you know, as long as it's healthy, makes them realize that they can be independent adults as well. 
um, you know, when, when you're attached too much, like we co-slept way too long, I think. And like, you know, it became quite problematic again, throwing rocks at a glass house. But again, you know, going back on the fact that kids, you know, really do look to us for how they're going to navigate, you know, their reality. If they're, if you're always kind of insistent that you guys need to be together, they're going to pick up on that and feel when you leave too, they're not going to feel safe. Right. That's my understanding. Yeah. I mean, it it makes total sense because I think, you know, I think at least with anxiety and I'm sure other things that are kind of off the anxiety spectrum, this is true as well, but like, you know, the more that we as parents communicate a lack of confidence in our child's ability to tolerate something, the less they believe they can tolerate it. So our ability to sort of validate and communicate confidence, right? This is hard. You don't, you don't really want to separate right now. You don't want me to go read my book for an hour. I get, I get that. You want to play with me right now. I know that you can handle this. I know that we will get together in a little bit and we'll, we'll have a lot of fun then. Um, and maybe if your kid's little, an hour is too long. Maybe it's 10 minutes, you know? But it you build up, right? You just got to start somewhere. And to say like, yeah, you know what? I need a little bit of a break. It's hard to say goodbye, but I'll be back in a little bit and we'll play then. Like that confidence in their ability to cope with your absence. Again, I'm not saying leave your child alone, leave them with another adult, you know, but like you can, you can go take time for yourself. Um, and that confidence that they can handle that is really important. They are going to internalize that. Do you find with your clients, because this is what I find, like, so you, let's say you suggested what you just said and they're like, oh, I guess, you know, I'm just supposed to get a babysitter every night. Like I get that, like, you know, so I'll say, hey, why don't you take two hours off the table? And what they hear is, oh, so you want me to go to Burning Man? Like, that's what you heard. That's what you, that's, that's how this, yeah. this, uh, you know, directive got filtered in through your brain. So it's so, I, I don't know what, you know, how our culture has gotten us to that state, but it's, we always go to these extremes, right? Mm-hmm. Like, no, that's not what has happened is we're on the other side. Like we, you know, we are so depleted that it requires a radical course correction, which is mild. Like just, you know, just the littlest thing to let you feel like you have some ownership over the way you live your life. Like, like that's all we're sort of suggesting. Right. Um, Like your friend sitting on the porch reading her book while she set her kid up with some water play. And maybe the first time she does that, he can play for five minutes. Right. Like, let's be realistic. Let's set realistic expectations. If you set a kid up for water play and you go read a book, the first time you do that, guess where they're going to want to be? Right <laughs> next to you, bugging you about the book. Sure. But if you continue to do it and you continue to set it up and you continue to show where the expectation is and you practice it and you extend it a little bit longer, a little bit longer, a little bit longer, eventually they get into a rhythm. They learn the frame of the expectation and they can thrive inside of it. So it's not going to work right away you know, but it does work over time. So I also think that's another piece is like, we want to have developmentally appropriate expectations. If you're saying this to your 14 year old, yeah, you can expect that they can handle an hour while you read a book and they can go do something for, for an hour in the house while you're doing your thing. But if you have a four year old, it might be five minutes and that's also okay. And like, get, we get to six minutes. Can we get to seven minutes? You know, build up the tolerance. You know, another interesting thing I brought up in the book was um, this came from a child development specialist of like how much we, uh, um, I guess, underestimate 
kid's ability to do chores and I'm still getting better at this, but like, you know, a seven-year-old can do the dishes, but so often we'll only give them one chance, right? Like we, I've seen that in my own household, right? Like none of us got any skill doing it the first time, right? But like, so you'll ask your kid to do the dishes and it's horrible. And it's like, oh, they can't do this. You know, so you did, because those are amazing ways to get time back in your schedule as well, right? A lot, mm-hmm. you know, allow the family to share in domestic duties. And I think, again, you know, this is more kind of life hacky, but I found that really interesting how young, you know, as long as you give them a chance, folks, you know, kids will step up to the plate and alleviate, mm-hmm. you know, things that you're kind of doing and you might not want to be doing and take some responsibility for it if you give them the chance. And it goes along with exactly what you said, like, okay, you know, maybe the dishes are going to kind of be gross the first three times, like allow them to learn so that they can take that off your plate. And, you know, maybe that will free up some time to do something else. Right. And it's like, if you want, it's almost like you kind of have to kind of work towards that, right? Like if you want your kids to be able to do the dishes, that might start with you set a bucket on, you know, on a towel next to you in the kitchen with a cut, like an half an inch of soapy water and a brush and plastic plates and they do the dishes quotes can't see <laughs> my air quotes while you do the dishes and now you guys are playing because that's play yeah yeah and then you know you slowly have them come on a step stool in the sink and help you do it and then doing things together these these tasks these life tasks doing them together making them enjoyable for your child and a time for connection this is that sort of double duty kind of stuff like i have to do the dishes if i can slowly and over time help my child participate in this with me um, they will love this. I guarantee you, this is not like when we're like, you're asking your 14 year old to do the dishes and they roll their eyes at you. Um, this is like, a, when you start young, they just want to be with you. They just want to do what you're doing. And if you give them ta- like responsibility, they will eat it up. And so it's like, you start with low expectations and you make it fun and about connection. But over time, they build mastery over that skill. And then you can say, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to go sit and read my book or listen to my podcast or go for a quick walk on the treadmill or paint or whatever the you want to do. <laughs> and you practice doing this all by yourself. And if you need me, you call me, I'll be right in the other room, you know, whatever. Like there's a, you kind of have to build your way up to these things don't happen instantly. We can't say, to a kid who's never done it before, go play by yourself for an hour and I'm going to be here. Yeah. They, don't, they don't have the skill. This is a slow skill building thing. You have to work up to it, but it can be done. Yeah. I, I love it. Um, uh, yeah. I have very little to add. I think the only thing I would suggest that, and you've already alluded to it is how do you take the outcome out? Right? Like obviously you're, you're moving towards mastery and it's going to get there, but you know, the more you focus on the outcome well, I just want them to do the dishes. Like you've already lost Right. <laughs> right. Not about the dishes anymore. It's just about connection, occupying their time and building mastery slowly. One day you might get some dishes done from yeah. them, but that, you know, that's a lucky byproduct, but that's not what, the point. And another great thing is you're not adding another thing, right? Like in, in the book, I call it activity bundling. Like essentially I would argue the way you described it, because I was literally started to smile because I remember doing the same thing more with cooking um, with my my kids. But, you know, that's a way 
I think for most of us that at least have, you know, uh, somewhat of a loving relationship and hopefully a really thriving, loving relationship with our kids, similar to what I talked about, you know, taking my daughter to dance classes, like that would create amazing memories, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, before we hit play, I knocked over um, tea all over the place, right? I shared that with you guys. Like if your kid knocks over soapy bubbles all over, you know, and you're just like, oh, this is bananas. Like that could, those are like, you know, those playful moments that happen as honest accidents. Like, I, I don't know. I think those are some of the funnest things. It's when I look back, sometimes they're not that great in the moment, but like, as long as they were done, you know, in this, in sort of the process of, um, getting towards where you want to get to go, they generally are like pretty amazing memories in the, in the rear view mirror. Right. And I think the re- the difference between a person who, when their kid knocks over all the soapy water onto the floor, um, and, who gets like really frustrated by that. And the person who can sort of laugh and say, Oh my goodness, look, we've made such a mess. Let's clean it up together is probably determined by what you're focused on at the outset. Like if you are saying the goal of this is to get the dishes done as fast as possible, and now you've just totally derailed it. Now we have a huge mess to clean up. Well, yeah, you're going to feel super frustrated. But if you think the goal of this is just for mastery building and exposure and connection and double duty, like I'm going to do the dishes anyway, so you know we'll get there. Um, then when the soap gets spilled, you recognize that's part of the process, and you're like, okay, we yeah. can handle. It. So it's like where are like what what goal we're focused on can determine a lot of our resilience when things don't go the way we expect them to. Yeah. It's amazing, right? I mean, it goes, you know this better than I, but like, it's clear that all of these thoughts, like, you know, again, I think what I tapped into is that if you can use mindfulness as a tool for one, enjoying yourself, but then also getting out of that state of rumination, whether the underpinning is cognitive behavioral therapy or ACT or whatever the, you know, latest sort of science is with regards to how our thoughts really are a major contributor to mental hygiene, that, um, you know, if we can stack the deck in our favor and sort of bias ourselves, whether that's just simple re- reframing or really, you know, taking an active role in how we plan out our activities, mm-hmm. we get out of that mind wandering rumination trap and we realize mm-hmm. like, hey, life's actually a lot more fun than I gave it credit, right? Yeah. So I guess that's our homework for everyone listening right now. Go <laughs> figure out one way today or tonight or whenever you're listening to this to just like, Go find one fun thing to do. There, there's no agenda. You're not focused on outcome. You're focused on process, and you just see where it goes, like open ended. And definitely check in with yourself. You know, if you can do it a couple times, check in with yourself afterwards and see how you feel. See yeah. if it's worth doing again. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom with us. Oh my goodness! Thanks so much for having me. This is this is a pleasure. Mike and I talked about how overwhelmed, exhausted, and burnt out parents today are feeling and how we need to start being intentional about what we're using for self-care to be sure that it is genuinely filling us up. To help you get started, I've created a simple weekly calendar so you can be intentional about addressing your cognitive, emotional, and physical needs. Plus, I have created a kid version to help you teach your child how they can themselves relax and refuel in ways that actually benefit their development and their mental health. If you want a copy of my weekly Banish Burnout and Banish Burnout Kid Edition calendar, 
All you have to do is rate and review this podcast. Send me a screenshot of your review to info at drsarahbren.com and I'll send the calendar straight to your inbox. That's info at drsarahbren.com. I really appreciate you being here and your reviews make a huge difference in helping the podcast get into the playlist and ears of more parents just like you. So thank you and don't be a stranger. Thank you.